0: If you have your Bibles, let's open to where Paul was reading for us a little earlier. We're in John, sort of backtracking a little bit because we're actually farther along in John, but because it's Palm Sunday, we are in John 12, and we'll look at verses uh, 9 through 19 again. I purposely went back a couple verses because the significance of the multitude of the crowds, is there, and so let's pick it up in verse nine. It says, was a great many of the Jews, when they knew that he was there, they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they also might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away believing in Jesus. Now, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat in it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting, on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason... I want to emphasize this here. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world is gone after him. We call this the triumphal entry. Um, it is found. Uh, in all four of the Gospels, we will look and do a comparison between the three to get a complete picture of this very special day. As you go back to John 12, um, we just mentioned uh, the reason for the multitudes. It was a great multitude, it says in verse 12, that had come to the feast. Now, the reason for the great multitude Is given to us um, in verse 17 and 18. Uh, the The word had gotten out that there was a man who was dead. Many of the Jews were there, and they knew this was a miracle, and there was no way they could deny it. And as a result, it had to be like you know, just wildfire going through the city of Jerusalem. That a man has been raised from the dead. And it's one of the reasons in verse 12 that there was a great multitude. And the other reason, um, that's the first reason for the multitude, but number, if you look at verse 13, the reason we call it Palm Sunday, he says he took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. So we, we have this view of um, what took place on this very, very special day. I want you to turn, and if you're at home, please go grab your Bible. Um, I don't know if you have it on screen or not. We'll be going to quite a few places this morning. But let's go back to Matthew's account of this event. Matthew chapter 21, verses 9 through 12. Again, we have the mention of the Lord being in Bethage in Bethany. And we have the account of them quoting Psalm 118. And then we read down, picking it up in verse nine. It says, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, Well, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12 tells us, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who brought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables and the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. As it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, we get the impression in reading this verse here, going from verse 11, where he goes directly into the temple, and the impression that it leaves us is he turned over the tables. In other words, he's already come down the Mount of Olives. They've already worshipped him. And what's being, we get the impression here that he then goes right into the temple and he cleans house, so to speak. And um, the reason it's important to have a full account of all four Gospels is it explains in more detail what really happened, because that's not what happened. So if you turn with me now to Mark chapter 11, I'll give you a moment to get there. We have again the triumphal entry. And um, we read, it tells us, if you go ahead to, well, let's read verse nine again. Again, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, as we were singing earlier in the highest. Now, verse 11 tells us that Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. And when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was getting late, so now we have a little bit of a time frame when this happened. It happened later in the day. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. So, Matthew gives us sort of the impression that he went in and turned over the tables. That's not what happened. When we read Mark's account, it said that um, uh, he went in, looked around, it was getting late in the day, and then he turns around and walks back out. Verse 12 says, and the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry, and this is where we have the cursing of the fig tree, but then let me draw your approach attention to verse 15 so he came to Jerusalem when did he come into Jerusalem the next day and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold dove and he would not allow anyone to carry uh, wares through the temple and then he said Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into um, a den of thieves? One of the points that we're making as we're studying through the Gospel of John, that it's divided into five sections. First of all, his deity in chapter one, his presentation. Uh, The largest uh, part um, is actually chapters 5 through 12 where the whole point in John's gospel is how much they despised him and were plotting to kill him and in verse 18 of Mark's gospel says and the scribes and the chief Pharisees heard it and they sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because the people were astonished at his teaching So we have here a picture a lot of people don't think that mild mannered Jesus would ever do something so radical. And the reason they want to kill him is that these religious leaders were actually taking advantage of the people who were bringing uh, their offering and in order to have an offering you had to use uh, the temple currency, what we call the temple shekel. And what they would do is they would bump up the, the, the transaction from the money that they had to the temple, and there actually it was a racket. And so the religious leaders were profiting off of the people buying a sacrifice. Well, a little sidetrack here. Jesus was angry. He went in, made a whip, and he cleaned house. You know, it says you can be angry, but don't sin. It's okay to be angry. And if you're not angry with some of the stuff that we're hearing that's going on in the world today, um, you might think, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't want me to lose my temper and get upset with this. Jesus sure did. And then he quotes scripture to justify why he did what he did. And um, it could be said about the prosperity teachers today. I question their motive. Um, You know me, I'm not afraid to name names. I'm wondering what kind of Bible study Joel Olstein has given this morning. I wonder if he's telling his people to live their best life now. It's just not gonna fly right now. It's not gonna fly if you try to teach it in Haiti or any third world country, it's crazy. But if people were teaching the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, they would actually be looking for the things that are happening in our world right now. And if you didn't catch last Sunday's message, I addressed just the facts of why these things have to happen. We shouldn't be looking for our best life now because the Bible says that this generation is going to see unprecedented um, things happening. My wife told me this morning, she just heard a report that suicide is up, it's doubled, just within the last couple of weeks. And there's a lot of people that, that are in despair. And there's been a lot of churches who have not been preparing their people for what Jesus called the beginning of sorrows. And we we touched on it quite a bit last week with famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and false teachers Instead of preparing, and I'll make a point of this later, instead of preparing the people that the last days are really going to deteriorate and to the point where the Lord says, will he find any faith when he returns? Because we've gotten away from teaching the whole counsel of God, people aren't equipped when we do go through a difficult time. All right, got a little sidetrack there. Let's go to Luke Luke's account, Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. This is my favorite account of the four accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Well, Luke adds details that this day is one of the most important days in all of Scripture. There are four prophecies in Luke's account, and we will go through all four of them this morning um the first one let's go to Luke 19 and we'll read verses 28 through 36 when he had said this he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he came to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying go to the village opposite you And when you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. I want you to loose him and bring him here. And by the way, if anyone asks you, why are you loosing him? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed, found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of them said to him, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And um, I really want to know the rest of this story. How did the Lord communicate to this guy? Uh, Had he talked to him ahead of time? Um, But he doesn't put up any um, resistance. And he allows them to take the donkey. And they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their garments on the colt And then they set Jesus on him. By the way, those of you who um, raise horses or donkeys or whatever, you just don't get on one and ride one if they've never been broken. It's unnatural, because they're not used to it, (laughs) to sit on a horse that's never been ridden before. He will buck you off. Same with a donkey. Same with this one here. But there was a calm that came over this donkey And the fact that Jesus just sat on him with no resistance from the animal is a miracle within itself. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as they drew near, I'm just gonna leave that right there. So we have um, this first prophecy. And I'll mention them. I'll, I'll say prophecy number one, prophecy number two, prophecy number three, and prophecy number four. This is prophecy number one. Where it comes from is the book of Zechariah. So I want you to turn with me, please. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament, so it should be easy enough to to find. Uh, Draw your attention to chapter nine. And I'm gonna come back and actually comment and do a little sidetrack because um, I've never really have spoke about the first eight verses, but I've just pointed out the prophecy um, in 9 and 10. Uh, but let's look at the, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation lowly riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey and then we have a gap um, between verses 9 and 10 the first time he comes humbly and lowly on a little donkey verse 10 is when he returns a second time and sets up the millennial kingdom only this time it's going to be on a white stallion and a robe written, King of kings and Lord of lords, with a sharp two-edged sword going out of his mouth to conquer the nations. So between verse 9 and verse 10, and this is something as as we teach through the scriptures that I want you to get used to as we do it because um, there's a complete change of thought from the first eight verses to verse 9. And then there's a complete gap of at least 2,000 years between 9 and 10. So verse 10 is a prophecy about the millennium. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and a horse from Jerusalem. The battle bull shall be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the of the earth. That's, that tells me I have hope. It tells me in Revelation that the church is going to rule and reign with Jesus during this thousand year millennial period of time. So, with all the stuff that's going on, I mean, the whole world has literally been turned upside down. I read an article yesterday that said, End of Hollywood period this is this will be the end of Hollywood, uh, because nobody's making movies, nobody's going to the theaters, and um, even Disneyland's closed. I mean everything is shut down. just driving down the street I just <laughs> I nod my head and go, This is the most surreal thing I've ever seen in my entire life and Our world will never be the same. Now, if you know this voice, you know that it's not the end. Um, Somehow, we get the feeling that we're invincible and that we're never going to die. I got news for you. If the Lord doesn't come from the rapture, the old saying, two things you can be sure of, death and taxes, those two, guaranteed. And here... We have this hope that to be absent from the body um, is to be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous event. First Corinthians 15 in a twinkling of an eye. You're going to be changed, and this mortal will put on immortality. And I'm going to have a new body and you're going to have a new body. And the former things, this time we're living in right now, will be remembered no more. Now, I don't know if you can hear me at home, but I want amen for that one. Okay, I think I heard something. And that's the hope that we have. First Corinthians 13 says, When all said and done, that we have three things that nobody can take away from us. Our faith, our hope, And our love. And um, the economy can't take that away from us. Our enemy can't take that away from us. In a lot of instances, this has been hard to say, but probably good for some people, as far as a wake-up call, and maybe reprioritizing things in their life. All right, well, this is the first prophecy. It was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. But I want you to go back to verse 1, where it says the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Haderach and Damascus, its resting place uh, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are the Lord. And it goes on here to talk about Tyre on verse three, built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the, the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she shall, shall be devoured by fire. What we have in view here, the burden of the word of the Lord. Um, this word burden means judgment against God. Alexander the Great was an instrument of God's judgment. He, his forces destroyed the land of Hadrach, the key towns of Damascus and Hamath, Damascus was the capital of Syria and still is to this day. Also, it continues to cause Israel a great deal of difficulty to this day. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. But if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 17 verse one says that it's gonna be destroyed and never inhabited again. And I look at that and I thought, well, that's, Is that possible? Well, yes, the the terror organization of the world happens to be Damascus. Assad, their president, has no heart whatsoever. He's a complete maniac dictator, and he doesn't care how many of his people die And um, as long as he remains in power. Well, something's going to happen. It has to happen. Um, My guess is they go a little bit too far someday and they lob something over. It's only 60 miles from the Golan Heights to Damascus. And um, they're going to lob something over and it's going to hit and do damage, maybe a dirty bomb or a chemical weapon of some sort. But I'll tell you, there's a saying in Israel because of what happened at Masada, never again, never again. And if that happens and it comes out of Damascus, by by Damascus and you'll have Isaiah chapter 17 verse one fulfilled. Um, the cities mentioned in verses one through seven trace the march of Alexander the Great's army down into the promised land. It is history now. But when it was written it was prophecy its literal fulfillment makes it one of the most remarkable accounts we find in the word of God. This is so disturbing to the liberal theologians that he attempts to move the time of the writing of Zechariah up to the time of Alexander the Great. Why? Because he was so spot on with what he said. I'm gonna um, ask the question Well, was it fulfilled? Let me give you the record of the historian Flavius Josephus. According to him, the high priest in Jerusalem had a vision in which he was instructed to go out and meet the conqueror who was coming. And so he waited for the coming of Alexander the Great. Did you catch what I just said? Uh, Let let me just uh, tell you a little bit for those of you who are not familiar with Flavius Josephus. He actually was brought up in a priestly family in Jerusalem. So he's Jewish. He, in July 67 CE, he was trapped in a cave. And I'm gonna put a picture, we found one online this is Mount Arbel in Israel. We, you can only see pictures of it because this is a steep side and uh, it was in these caves that uh, Josephus with 40 other men were hiding from the general Vespasian who would later become emperor of Rome Josephus was a Pharisee, Uh, he was a a priest, but when Rome invaded, he was part of trying to defend the Galilee. Now this mountain right here is one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, If you look straight, if you look right straight where you see the water, you're gonna run into Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. Well, they built these caves because they were being defeated by the Romans and they were hiding out in these caves. Years ago, we would, we would go there and basically what the Romans did is they built a scaffolding with ropes and they would pull themselves up and then they would throw fire in these caves and uh, this was happening. Josephus saw it happening and the 40 men that were with him Said, we're not going to burn to death. We're just going to jump out and commit suicide. That bothered Josephus. And I researched this this morning. I wanted to know um, how they captured Flavius Josephus. And actually, I was able to Google it, and it actually came up. And the story goes like, um, like this He convinced them not to jump but to do what they did on Masada, and they cast lots, and they took each other's life, which meant there was two left, and a guy named Titus and Josephus were the other ones, and they gave gave an ultimatum to Josephus. You can come and be a writer and a historian for us, or we'll kill you right here now. He decided to take the job. So what I'm about to quote is the events from verses one to eight in Zechariah, at least from his perspective. So I'm quoting now um, Flavius Josephus. And when he understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and a multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable. We're talking about Alexander the Great, up to this point, he's destroyed all these cities, but now he's approaching Jerusalem. And um, we're told that the high priest had, or Alexander the Great actually had a vision about what was about to take place. So imagine in your mind's eye, being a part of Alexander the Great's army, getting ready to now destroy Jerusalem. But as he comes to the city, there's this parade, if you want to, or procession of these priests and a multitude of citizens, and the procession was venerable in a manner of it different from the other nations. And when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans had followed him, though they should have liberty to plunder the city, that's what they were used to, and torment the high priest and kill him, with the king's this pleasure fairly promised them, uh, the very reverse happened. All right, basically, Alexander the Great really only had an army of 50,000. So when he conquered a city, he completely leveled it so that there would be nobody following him from behind. He was known for his brutality. And so he would always psych up his men in his army. You guys are gonna make a good... uh, take from the plunder that we're going to get from Jerusalem. That's what they're thinking. But what happened, Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood in fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, because that's what the high priest wears, with um, on his head the golden crown, having the golden plate, whereupon the name of God was engraved, He approached by himself. So now we have Alexander going on ahead by himself and adored that name that was on the high priest's golden crown and first saluted the high priest. This is Alexander the Great. Now the Jews also did together with one voice and they saluted Alexander and encompassed him about whereupon the king of Syria army behind him and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed he he was disordered in his mind. However, Pomamio alone went up to him and asked him how is it that that it came to pass that when all the others adored him he should adore the high priest of the Jews and to whom he replied I did not adore him but the God who hath honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, and this very habit, in other words, his clothing, when I was in Dios in Macedonia, whom when I was considering within myself how I might obtain dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly, to pass over the sea there. Uh, for that, he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Now, we'll be studying Daniel shortly, and we know that this is the order of, of conquest. It was Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and then Alexander the Great. So when in, Um, that having seen no other in that habit and now seeing this person in it and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I would bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therefore conquer Darius, which he did, and destroy the power of the Persians, which he did, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And then it quotes Flavius Josephus, the Antiquities of the Jews, book 11, chapter 13, page 350, for those of you who want to verify what I just read. Then he entered into the city of Jerusalem, and he worshiped God in the temple. Another tradition says that not only did the high priest approach him arrayed in priestly garments, but that he also brought along the book of Daniel and he showed Alexander the prophecy concerning him. This so moved him that he went into the city and offered sacrifice and worshiped in the temple. The fact that he did not destroy Jerusalem Makes Zachariah's prophecy very remarkable, and it doesn't uh, contradict the fact that Alexander, though the most brilliant general of the day, he was still highly cruel. He was brutal, and he was ignorant. I figured, as long as we're only having one service, that why not get a little sidetracked? Why not go a little bit longer? Why not deal with the first eight verses of Zechariah, which I have never done in all my studies on Palm Sunday? So I thought I would take a little bit of time and point out this as we study God's word. Expect it to shift. We're talking about one thing for the first eight verses, and now we have a prophecy that's fulfilled on Palm Sunday with this donkey, and then a gap of 2,000 years that talk about his second coming. All right, so, bottom line, verse nine fulfills Jesus riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Verse 10 is yet future, uh, the kingdom age. I should make mention of the four gospel writers. Only Matthew's account tells us it was Zechariah. One and the other one says, as the prophet said, but it doesn't tell us which prophet. Well, the prophet is Zechariah. Was the prophet who foretold the prophecy And Matthew's account is the only one of the four. So, first of the four prophecies fulfilled. Let's go back to the Gospel of Luke. Prophecy number two. We find in verse 37 and 38. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen. And we read in John's account one in particular, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, saying, blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the second prophecy being fulfilled. I need you to turn with me to Psalm 118. And let me just start by saying that there are different types of psalms. There are psalms of repentance, psalms of remorse. And then there's prophetic psalms and messianic psalms that foretell um, the coming of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. Let me draw your attention to verses 22 to 26 The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Please tuck that in the back of your mind because I'm going to be coming back to it as we close our study this morning. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This uh, verse here I want to go back and point out specifically verse 24 where it says this is the day which the Lord has made. My question is what day? Well the day that Jesus allowed the people to worship him as the Messiah. This was the only time he allowed it publicly to happen. And he points out here that says there's a specific day prophesied and it's going to be fulfilled when I ride that donkey down. I'm going to allow the multitudes. When before, if he healed the blind man, what did he tell the blind man? Make sure you don't tell anybody. He didn't want the multitudes around because they were thorning in on him. Not this time. This time, he said, this day is special. This is the one day that he allows the people to worship him as a Messiah. It is a very special day. Now, what is the reaction to the religious leaders? You need to turn back to Luke 19 and look at verses 39 and 40. Remember, they already want to kill him, we read in John, um, Verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you realize? They actually think you're the Messiah. They knew Psalm 118, and this could only apply to and be sung to by people who were acknowledging that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So they didn't believe that. So their response was, to this fulfillment of Psalm 118 is rebuke your disciples. They think you're the Messiah. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Why? Because somebody was going to be worshiping the Messiah this day. Why? Because it's written. This is a special day. This is the day when people were going to be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if they don't do it, well, okay, then the rocks are gonna uh, immediately cry out. Verse 41, it tells us we have a complete emotional turnaround. One from great joy as the people are worshiping him to now, verse 41, as he drew near the city, he began to weep. Over it. this is one of two times it tells us that Jesus wept my question is why why is he weeping uh, right now why did he well the third prophecy is in verse 42 and I'm only going to read half of it so let's call it verse 42a the reason he's weeping he has tears in his eyes while he's saying this And I'll try to put some emotion into it, as he would have. Oh, if you had only known, if you had only known, even especially in this your day. This your day is, um, he's saying if you only knew that this was a day spoken about in Psalm 118, but also a day that the prophet Daniel spoke about, and he foretold this day to the day. And with that being said, I'm going to have you turn with me um, to the book of Daniel chapter nine. I'm going to put a a map by Sir Robert Anderson, the coming prince, a diagram of uh, Daniel chapter nine, and even going back and up to the, Um, 445 B.C. So, Daniel 9, let me just give you a little background. Um, This is what uh, Dr. Philip Newman uh, says about this chapter. This is another one of those remarkable chapters in Scripture, according to Dr. Philip Newell. He evaluates it. The greatest chapter in the book, and one of the greatest chapters of the entire Bible, the double theme of prayer and prophecy. If one were to choose the 10 greatest chapters of the Bible on the subject of prayer, this chapter would be included on any list. If the 10 most important chapters on prophecy were chosen, this chapter would again be included on any list. The first 21 verses give us the prayer of Daniel. And the final six verses gives us the very important prophecies of the 70 weeks. So if you look at verse 1, it just tells us in verse 2 that Daniel was a student of Jeremiah. And he he knew that they were going to be in in, um, Babylon for 70 years. Uh, verse two says, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through given through the prophet Jeremiah that he would accomplish 70 years at the desolation of Jerusalem. So it's time to go home. And what does Daniel do? He begins to pray. It's a powerful prayer. It escalates, builds to a crescendo, if you would, by the time you get to verse 19 where he says, oh, Lord, hear, oh, Lord, forgive, oh, Lord, listen and act, don't delay on your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. He's praying, but his prayer is interrupted. uh, We're told by the angel Gabriel, who appears to Daniel, and let's pick it up in verse 24. This is what Gabriel is telling Daniel. And let me just read a little bit um, where it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. What's being said here? Well, 70 weeks does not mean weeks of seven days any more than it means weeks of seven years or seven other periods of time. The Hebrew word for seven is shabuah, meaning a unit of measure. It could be compared to our word dozen when it stands alone. It could be a dozen of anything, a dozen eggs, a dozen bananas, so here, 70 weeks means 77s. It could be 77s of anything. It could be units of days or months or years. In the contrast of this verse, it is plain that Daniel has been reading in Jeremiah about 70 years' captivity. Jeremiah had been preaching and writing that the captivity would be for 70 years. The 70 years of captivity were the specific penalty for violating 70 sabbatical years. That would be seventy sevens, a total of 490 years. In those 490 years, Israel had violated exactly 70 Sabbath years so that they would go into captivity for 70 years. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept sabbath, to fulfill threescore and ten years. That comes from Second Chronicles thirty-six twenty-one. So, what he's telling them, one of the reasons they're in captivity, is you didn't keep the sabbath for the land. And so now i 'm going to take you out of the land for seventy years, and it 's going to have its sabbath rest for seventy years, but it 's seventy times seven, so basically verse twenty four what 's important that we understand especially when it comes to the study of eschatology and the rapture in particular, because if you the first thing it tells us is seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. So now we know who he has in view. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about Jerusalem, the holy city, and the Jewish people. But he's also going to accomplish things that go into the church age. Now, some of these things have happened. Um, To make reconciliation for iniquity. That's Jesus dying on the cross that's been fulfilled. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that has not. To seal up vision and prophecy, that has not. So in a 490-year period of time, God is going to accomplish these events. So we have one week equals seven years. 70 weeks equals 490 years. 70 weeks here is divided into three periods. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week, and um, you can follow this up if you can on, on the screen, and it brings us to verse 25, it says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's important, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, so now we have the 62 weeks And the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Now this is a mind-boggling verse. It says, when the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Um, We're talking uh, during the time of Nehemiah, Ezra. Uh, They would have been trying to encourage the people to go back and restore the um, city of Jerusalem. Verse 25, the command meant to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, was issued in the month Nisan, 445 BC. That then will be our starting point. The first seven weeks of the 49 years brings us to 397 BC and to Malachi and the end of the Old Testament. Uh, there were troublous times as witnessed by both Nehemiah and Malachi. So 62 weeks, or 434 years, brings us to the Messiah. Now, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, and on his map up here, The Coming Prince, has worked out the time schedule. From the first month Nisan to the 10th of Nisan, April 6, 32 A.D., which is 173,880 days, dividing them according to the Jewish calendar of a 360-day year. He arrives at 483 years, or 69 sevens, on this day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, offering himself for the first time publicly and officially as a Messiah. Now let's just stop there, and I'm gonna have you turn to the book of Nehemiah. We have to have a starting point of a command being given. The command we find, given by King Artaxerxes, um, Nehemiah would have been the cupbearer to the king. And I'm just going to read the first three verses for starters. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah it came to pass in the month of Shezlev in the 12th year. I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, or Jerusalem, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to him, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, And the gates are burned with fire. So he gets this report that's extremely depressing. The people are in despair. They're discouraged. Um, They're not working. And um, they're they're pretty much just downcast. Well, that brings us to chapter two. It says, and it came to pass in a month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, that King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad before in his presence. Why was he sad? Well, one of his buddies just came back from Jerusalem. It's wasted. Everybody's depressed. And nobody wants to work. And that brought Nehemiah down. He was having a hard day. But he still had to go to work. But it was a no-no to be sad in the presence of the king. Therefore the king said to him, Why is your face so sad? Are you sick? There's, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became afraid, because you couldn't be sad in the presence of the king. And he said to the king, "May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father, and his tombs, it lies in waste, the gates are burned with fire." And the king said, "said to Nehemiah, What do you want, Nehemiah? What's your request?" So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, I like this, I always like to stop and think about this. He's in one of those situations where he has to give a response but he wants to acknowledge the Lord in this. What do you want, Nehemiah? So he prays to the Lord and he says to the king all at the same time, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I might rebuild it. So the king said to him and the queen was sitting by him, well, how long are you going to be gone for? When are you going to return? So if it pleased the king to send me, I sent him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it please the king, I need letters to be given to me for the, for the governors of the region beyond the river that they might permit me to pass till I come to Judah. Uh, And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city, wall, for the house, and I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God. Daniel chapter nine, verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand, That from the going forth of the command, here it is. You got it from Xerxes. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, is going to be this designated period of time that works out to a date that we know is April 3rd. Let's go back to um, this time. Go back to Luke's gospel. No, nope, not quite yet. I want to touch on verse 26 and 27 of Daniel 9. And that's the end of the chapter. <clears throat> so this gives us the very day that the Messiah would be revealed. And then it says, concerning the Messiah, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. The word there in the Hebrew is actually executed. What? The Messiah is going to be executed? But not for himself. My friends, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ in this verse right here. He was examined by Pilate four times. And every time he would come out and he said, I find no fault in this man. Nothing that is deserving of death. Nonetheless, he did die but he died for me and he died for you. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Here's another prophecy. The people of the prince is a reference, the prince here is a reference to the Antichrist. He is to come, future tense. But they're gonna come against Jerusalem and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That literally was fulfilled Jesus died in 32 AD, but the Romans came in 70 AD, and Jesus is actually gonna foretell that destruction. And the end of it will be with a flood until the end of the war's desolations are determined. Who are these people that came? Well, we know because of history, it was the Roman armies. Now, between verse 26 and 27, is like Zechariah verses nine and 10. We have a gap. Jesus was killed in 32 A.D. And verse 37, there's a gap that goes all the way into the middle of the tribulation period, which is yet future. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. God owes Israel seven years. The clock stopped when Jesus died. And he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There has to be a rapture. Because during this period of time, we call the tribulation period, it is seven years that he owes Israel. And um, it has to be specifically Israel, seven-year period of time. A lot of people don't get this who don't hold to the preacher point of view. They don't have a good understanding of Daniel chapter nine. This is to the Jewish people. In verse 27, uh, the church will have been raptured. And then he makes a covenant with Israel. We'll know when the tribulation begins because it tells us that he makes a covenant here with Israel for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he, now who is the he? Well, he's referred to back in verse 26 as a part of the people of the prince who is to come. In other words, the Antichrist is gonna rise out of Europe somewhere. Of the, of the Roman Empire and he shall bring an end to the sacrifice of offering and on the wings of desolation shall be one made desolate even the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24 when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet then understand, run, hide, Pray that your wives aren't pregnant. Pray that it's not in a winter time. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath. Why not on a Sabbath? Jewish law requires you can only go so far on a Sabbath. But if your life is at stake, then then um, Jesus is verifying um, the book of Daniel and the events in the book of Daniel. Now we can go to uh, back to Luke chapter nineteen. So we got past Luke nineteen forty two A and um, Jesus said if only you had known even especially this your day. Now he was telling them that that this was the one that was prophesied in Psalm 118, prophesied in Daniel chapter nine. And remember he's saying this with with tears running down his face. That the things that make for your peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. And then he says exactly what Daniel said in Daniel 9 verse 27. He prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because, and I have that underlined, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Exactly, this is prophecy number four. Jesus is prophesying. It has been fulfilled that in 70 AD, 38 years after Jesus said, This, that the Romans came and destroyed um, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, There's evidence of that to this day when we visit the Temple Mount. We see the stones that were thrown over um, from there. Now, the reason for the judgment is given to us in verse 44 because you didn't know the time of your visitation. The disciples didn't fully understand it. Um, The implication is here, you guys should have been studying the scriptures, should have been studying Daniel 9, should have been studying Psalm 118, you should have been studying Zechariah, knowing that this event was foretold because you did not know the time of your visitation implying that they should have. There's a lot of people confused today and they don't understand what we call eschatology or the study of last last day things. But we're supposed to. A lot of it lays at the fault of the guy standing behind the pulpit and delivering seeker-sensitive messages. Basically, like I dropped his name earlier, Joel style, um, wanting everybody just uh, leave with um, happy feelings and and don't say anything heavy or something that's going to bother people. But as we make our way through the scriptures, I'll begin wrapping this up this morning by going into chapter 20 and uh, the parable of what we call the parable of uh, the vineyard. And So the parable of the vineyard, let me give you a little quote from J. Vernon McGee about this parable. The owner of the vineyard kept sending servants to the husbandman to see how things were going. One by one the servants were beaten. God would send prophet after prophet to Israel, and they were they were absolutely rejected. Many of them were stoned and killed, and finally the father sent his son. Jesus Christ was the son, and he was telling these religious rulers exactly what was in their heart and minds to do with him. They were going to crucify him, and God was going to permit it. Let's read it, picking up in chapter 20, verse 9, the parable of the vineyard owner. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. Leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, sent him away empty handed. So he'd send another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know I'll send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, this is the Lord saying, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, he was speaking this against the religious leaders, and they knew it all too well. And as J. Vernon McGee points out, <clears throat> this is what happened to the prophets that were sent to Israel. And they said, certainly not. And then I like this, because this is the second time in two chapters that we go back to Psalm 118. We read it earlier. And the Lord basically is saying to these guys, look, you're telling me back in um, chapter 19 to tell the people not to quote Psalm 118 because it speaks about me. So what does the Lord do? He says, well, it's speaking about you guys too. And he quotes Psalm 118, verse 17. He says, well, what is written then? The stone which the builders rejected. Who are the stones? The religious leaders. they was rejected by him. That's John 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. By the way, the same crowd that were cheering him, many in that same crowd, just a couple days later, were gonna say, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he is saying, I am the building stone that God is gonna build his church upon and the religious leaders and those that rejected him, uh, he calls them out here. As I close this up this morning, it ends with this verse. And, and this is because of the times and wh- what we're going through, maybe some of you have gotten away from the Lord and this has been a real wake up call for you. Or maybe you're listening in this morning just out of curiosity. Um, and you don't know and have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's one of two places when you hear the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, you have a decision to make, and it falls into one of two camps. The Lord says, whoever falls on that stone, that's a reference to himself, will be broken. But on whoever it falls... It will grind him to powder. Today, you and I can fall on that stone who is Jesus Christ and be saved. That is, we've come to him as a sinner, broken in spirit, broken in heart. When we do this, we are on the foundation that no man can lay, which is Jesus Christ, the stone. No other foundation can no man lay that which is laid Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. Daniel tells us that the stone which fell in judgment someday will grind to powder the nations that rejected him. That's Daniel chapter 2. What the Lord is saying in this parable is as clear as the noonday sun. It could not have been misinterpreted. I was reading my, and I will close with this, my wisdom for today, for April 4th, which would have been yesterday. And I thought, I already knew what the the Bible study was gonna be about. And it is very applicable as we close our message this morning. So this is April 4th, no remedy. I'm just gonna read the last two paragraphs in closing. In his presence and his compassion, God had sent many prophets to warn Judah Jeremiah was such a prophet. When he delivered the message that God had determined to turn Judah into the hands of the Babylonians and that would be better for them if that they submitted to the Babylonians. King Zedekiah imprisoned him as a a traitor and God's remedy had been refused. So God's wrath was aroused. Whenever there is a a problem, God always has a remedy. For the problem of sin, God has prescribed a remedy, a cure. It is found in a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Bible tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. But be warned, if you refuse God's remedy, there's no other cure except that that stone will someday fall upon you in judgment. I'll use Chuck's closing prayer to close our message this morning. Father, we are grateful that you have been so patient with us, giving us opportunity again and again to turn from the world to live after you. Lord, help us live before you in a way that is pleasing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. ...that is rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he is saying, I am the building stone that God is going to build his church upon. And the religious leaders and those that rejected him, uh, he calls them out here. As I close this up this morning, it ends with this verse. And... Now, this is because of the times and what we're going through. Maybe some of you have gotten away from the Lord, and this has been a real wake up call for you. Or maybe you're listening in this morning just out of curiosity, um, and you don't know and have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's one of two places. When you hear the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, you have a decision to make, and it falls into one of two camps. The Lord says, whoever falls on that stone, that's a reference to himself, will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Today, you and I can fall on that stone who is Jesus Christ and be saved, that as we've come to him as a sinner, broken in spirit, broken in heart. When we do this, we are on the foundation that no man can lay, which is Jesus Christ, the stone. No other foundation can no man lay that which is laid, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. Daniel tells us that the stone which fell in judgment someday will grind to powder the nations that rejected him. That's Daniel chapter 2 what the Lord is saying in this parable is as clear as the noonday sun it could not have been misinterpreted I was reading my and I will close with this my wisdom for today for April 4th which would have been yesterday and I thought I already knew what the the Bible study was going to be about and it is very applicable as we close our message this morning. So this is April 4th, no remedy. I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs in closing. In his presence and his compassion, God had sent many prophets to warn Judah. Jeremiah was such a prophet. When he delivered the message that God had determined to turn Judah into the hands of the Babylonians, and... That would be better for them if that they submitted to the Babylonians. King Zedekiah imprisoned him as a a traitor and God's remedy had been refused. So God's wrath was aroused. Whenever there is a, a problem, God always has a remedy. For the problem of sin, God has prescribed a remedy, a cure. It is found in a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Bible tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. But be warned, if you refuse God's remedy, there's no other cure except that that stone will someday fall upon you in judgment. I'll use Chuck's closing prayer to close our message this morning. Father, We are grateful that you have been so patient with us, giving us opportunity again and again to turn from the world to live after you. Lord, help us live before you in a way that is pleasing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.